Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM, let's create. I don't believe that people should follow their dreams unless... Their dreams are what they're great at. I didn't say good. I said great. So if you're somebody who dreams of being a singer and you're going to move to New York, Nashville, or L.A., if you're good but you're great at numbers, you're great at numbers, you're good at singing, okay? I say follow the number path, become a great accountant. And with all the money you have from being a successful accountant, because you're great at it, buy some recording time, make some music. And then here's the joke. Give the music to your friends. Let them tell you you made the right decision. That was Jeff Garland. I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. This is Talk Easy. If uh, this is your first time tuning in, thank you for being here. If uh, you've been here before, welcome back. I want to say at the top, before we get into today's episode with Jeff Garlin, that uh, in recent weeks, we've been asking for donations of any kind to help this uh, nonprofit, independently operated and run program continue. We've received a handful of donations, and we want to thank every single one of you that has considered helping us out. That said, um, if you'd like to help out this show, but financially cannot do so, because I know uh, it is hard for many of us right now, one of the best things you can do for the podcast 
uh, is to share the show on social media. If any of the 140 plus conversations uh, have helped you, have inspired you, have meant something to you, sharing it online is really the best way for new listeners to find the podcast. Uh, If you don't have social media, share it with a friend. Reach out to someone you haven't spoken to in a while. Maybe some guest that has come on this show uh, reminds you of them. Maybe an episode can inspire someone to make that project they've been wanting to make. Whatever the case may be, uh, sharing it on social media with a friend really does help us out. Also, reviewing the show on iTunes uh, and SoundCloud also helps new people find the show. All of these little tiny contributions, uh, they add up, and they really ensure that we can continue making Talk Easy week after week. And so without further ado, I want to get into Jeff Garland. He's a comedian born and raised in Chicago, and uh, you have either seen or heard him in a great number of films and television shows, including The Goldbergs, Wally, Cars, Toy Story, Safety Not Guaranteed, He's directed three films, including Handsome, a Netflix mystery movie, Dealing with Idiots, and I Want Someone to Eat Cheese With. But where you probably best recognize him is on a show called Curb Your Enthusiasm, where he plays a character named Jeff Green. He's a manager to Larry David. You don't have a doorbell. You know you did? You totally fucked me. You what? Fucked me. What are you talking about? What'd you tell Funkhauser about the party for? Oh, why? He said something? Yeah, he said something. He called to complain he wasn't invited, and Susie invited him, and... Oh, that is so lame, you know? That, that is so lame to call up and do that. And guess what else they did? Beautiful. They brought Bam Bam. I will. Bam Bam's here. What are you doing? He brought that fucking nutbag into my house. Oh, my God. What the fuck did you go and tell him for? If you had told me who was coming to the party in the first place, I never would have said anything to him because I would have known he wasn't coming. You know, it's crazy. All these party rules. You can't tell who you're inviting. You can't tell anybody you're going. And you can't talk about it after. You know, it's like some It's like we're living in East Germany or something. Well, now I'm screwed. Just look at this. This is this is crazy. What, what is that? Is that Dr. Schaefer? What's he doing yeah. here? He had a party recently. He invited us. We're returning the favor. What's the big deal? Again. Again what? If I had known that he was going to be here, I wouldn't have come. If I'd known Bam Bam was going to be here, I would have left town. I think Curb Your Enthusiasm is uh, unquestionably in the pantheon of the best comedy shows ever. I think it's in there with Cheers and The Larry Sanders Show and Seinfeld, 30 Rock, Parks and Rec. I think Curb Your Enthusiasm has to be in that conversation. And Jeff has a big part in why the show has continued to succeed season after season. I don't want to get into too much detail about uh, what Jeff and I talk about in this hour. Um, I just want to thank him at the top for not only coming on the show, but for being uh, uh, an active and willing and engaged participant on this podcast. Sometimes we have to spend the first 10 to 15 minutes of this show convincing the guests, many of whom I do not know, that... Uh, This is a conversation that is going to be uh, a little bit different than most uh, traditional interviews that they're used to. But when it came to Jeff, uh, he was into it right out of the gate, and it made uh, the next hour really, really fun and interesting. And uh, we go all kinds of places, and I think 
we'll have to do a part two and three of this podcast down the line. But uh, until then, I hope you enjoy the next hour or so. And uh, he is someone with a big heart and uh, has this sort of warm, infectious personality and absolutely willing to go anywhere conversationally, which uh, is my favorite kind of guest. So without further ado, here is the one and only Jeff Garland. Did they tell you anything about what this is? I don't need to know anything. That's great. That's so much better. Yeah, that's my uh, MO. I've heard this. Like when I do talk shows on TV and stuff, there's no... I mean, I'll do a pre-interview if I have to, but I don't want to know anything before I walk out. Great. Yeah. I'll turn my phone off. I should turn mine off. (sighs) My phone is only filled with heartbreak decided that that this is an instrument of heartbreak via um is it heartbreak because of people or people right oh, of course yeah. not heartbreak because it's technology work. it's a fantastic piece of technology i'm sure but it's um yeah it's only heartbreak when did you decide that just now oh really yeah that um text primarily is the delivery of heartbreak yeah yeah it is um a horrifying format horrifying and so much of my humor is lost so much of my affection is lost nuance goes out the window and i love nuance and so i really don't like it i do think i may be the only person actually no i have a friend i'm not saying who it is but they (laughs) only do email they don't do text really yeah and it's so much better do they do phone calls yeah, they would they'd do phone calls. Phone calls are fine, and 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 emails fine. Text has just ruined my life. So you want to get to that point? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I actually may do that adjustment where where I have a list of let's say six people I email with because they're information people. Text is is really the only format of communicating where I feel like if it goes bad, I don't know how to recover from it. Even the ones that I think I might have recovered from, I've never recovered. Me emotionally and the situation. What has been so bad? You know, you write something and someone completely misunderstands what you say. And you spend so much time correcting that. Then they're always going to have a piece inside them that believes the wrong thing. Yeah. yeah they, also, they also have a, a, an existing document. Well, that's even more frightening, the things I've written. Like I even had this exchange. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you this exchange. This okay. is with my assistant. This happened last night. Okay, I put uh, tomorrow 9 a.m. my house. She went okay, sure. I go wrote wear something cottony. She writes back and you know it's just absurdism. Cottony, like I don't know what that know. means. Yeah. Well, cotton. I mean, I get that. Like, yeah. You know, she writes back cottony question mark. I go, I wrote, as in cotton, joke. She wrote, oh, okay. I said, wear wool. Okay. Oh, okay is the worst response to a joke. I, I'm putting that in my act. Remind me tomorrow. 
And, you know, so. But basically, yeah, I mean, it just, if I had said it, it would have worked immediately. Right. Uh, wear something Some cottony. cottony. And then, you know, someone's gonna go, someone would laugh and then maybe go, are you serious? Like they maybe won't get it after yeah. the laugh. But that, that just is, I really didn't like that. It really upset you. Well, no, no, that, that one's a mild one. But that's a daily occurrence. Mm. And I have a very subtle sense of humor. See, is this all around the fact that you really just want your bits to work no matter the format? Yeah, I want my bits to work no matter the format, of course. It's not all about that, but yeah, that's <laughs> that's I, I want everything that I say to come here's the thing. It's not even bits, it's just everything that I do, I want it to be received the way I want to receive it. Now, if I am doing a bit, I want it to be received as something funny. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm okay with failure, like something, you know, not working, but man, it just tears me apart. I can tell you, really, this is like something you're actively... Yeah, but that one didn't tear me apart. No, that but that's, me laugh. that's mild. Because I laughed at that, that's nothing. But I've had, you know, in the past year, I've gone through divorce... My mom died and my dogs died, plus two unrequited loves. Mm-hmm. So the unrequited loves via text have caused the most pain. The divorce through text. Was was the divorce brought via text? No, God, no. And uh, she's a lovely woman and I'm still close to her. But through text, we still have commun- miscommunications. Right. You know, I have to explain. This is someone who, who I was with for over 25 years, married for over 25, with over 25 years, but married for 25 years, too, who I get along with wonderfully, you know, uh, which I'd wish on anyone who ever gets divorced. The key to that is you yourself making a complete choice to have a warm relationship with the other person, no matter what. Mm. So even if they are upset or do something, it's very, um, oh, fucking text. It's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. It really is. And you'd think it's kind of like, let's even go back to um, cans through a window or if you're a little kid. Like, to me, the iPhone offers so many things that I dreamed of as a little kid. I used to sit with a calculator in bed and just look at the LED lights. You know what I mean? (laughs) Right. And spell out hello. And I was mystified by that. I loved it. Truly ours. Yeah, so this is a magical thing. But when you're on the phone with somebody, that's the moment. Mm -hmm. When you're in the room with somebody, that's the moment. When you're texting with somebody, it's just sort of a, I'll do this until. Yeah. And so I expected more out of text in terms of a, a true tool of communication. It only works with, I'll be five minutes late. Yeah, that's the only time it works. That's the only time it Pure works. Pure information. Pure information. You've brought up a lot of things that I figured we'd talk about at the end, but let's just dive into it. I'm, I'm good with anything. I, it's, you know, I, I'm, I'm very happy to be here. You were married for 25 years. Yes. And uh, I know you have two sons. Yes, two sons, yes. Uh, What is it like right now in in the aftermath of that divorce? Because you um, actually, uh, my mom was in a very similar situation, married to someone for a long time, at 56, 57, became recently single. Yeah. Um, I, I had this ongoing joke that I told my friends that the most terrifying thing about my mom being single mm-hmm. is that 
uh, we both could be on the same dating app, and then I could swipe right and see oh, here on be there. Horrifying. It'd yeah. be really horrible. Yeah. So what's it like being single right now? How are you feeling? Um. Well, I can tell you, there's two thoughts to that. Uh, first off, I would never be on a dating app. Uh, it's even that there's one that's for famous people, mm-hmm. and I have no interest. I have no interest in people telling people I'm on there. But I have to say, there's a couple thoughts. Number one, um, I love being alone. Love being alone. I love walking through to one side of my house and just walking back to the other side. No one's talking to me. No one's questioning me. Dig that. Don't love being single. I didn't. I didn't get divorced to get laid. I, I mean, yeah, but you know what I mean. It wasn't like, oh, I don't like being married. I love being married. I love or being having a significant other that I share a life with. That part of it is bad, you know, the the, the single part because I don't have anyone, mm. you know, and. Um, I'm always thinking about other people. So when I'm thinking of someone to be with now, I think of how my wife might react to it, my ex-wife might react to that, how my children would react to that. Mm-hmm. I don't think, what do I want? What do I need? But I also, you know, it's my life, you know. So I'm in a very precarious thing, you know. It's challenging. It's very challenging. And I'm, yeah, I'm not... I dig being alone. Just leave it that way. The 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 romantic part of it has been nothing but. Even though I uh, see it, we're on a podcast, I can't look. look things here's have, here's how the podcast goes. Uh, we talk. We should say anything we want to say, and then you can cut it out. I get that, by the way, and I've I've done that when I hosted one. So it's just. I already know I'll cut it out. See, that's why. <laughs> and I'm not watching my words when I talk with you. Okay. Um, it's just that I don't want to talk about my private dating sexual life. Sure. And But that's been good, but not as far as finding a mate. Right. As finding a significant other. And that's actually been better than it's ever been in my life, pre-married. <laughs> I'm just like, wow, you know, so I dating app, no, I, plenty of opportunity to meet people. When it, when it comes to the question of, of marriage, yes, I heard you talk about uh, being in love and being married yeah. on a show you did a couple of years ago called Death, Sex, and Money. Uh-huh. And I, I guess I'm curious because my, my parents have been divorced a few times over now. Right. And I've seen them fall you know, in love and out of love. Was the process of separating gradual? No, it was in my head I knew when I wanted to do it. And then when I set my mind to it, I did it. There was no, you know, I'm going to lay this. Right. You know, the, it was, nope, I know what I'm doing. So it was a Band-Aid. It was a ba- yes. And I find that in life, I mean, business for me too, Band-Aid's the only way to go. Just do it. Mm. The slow process doesn't help you. It's like, all right, getting into a swimming pool. It doesn't help you going one step at a time. Right. Maybe the first couple steps, I get that. But then dive in. See, the part is you really just have to get your your balls in there. Because once <laughs> that that's the fearful part. Well, yeah. That's the scariest part of it. Yeah, I guess that could be. But yeah, get the balls in. And so that's how I deal with things when I'm firing someone, when I'm quitting something, when I've ended something, when I know and I go, okay, uh, when would be 
a the right time to do this, not a good time, could give a crap about a good time. When's the right time? Mm-hmm. And then I do it. Boom. And I live with the consequences. When did you learn that philosophy? From my father. My father was at one point in his life for many years, a legal administrator. That's somebody who ran an office at a law firm, you know, and I would work for him in the summers. You know, I was I would be uh, an office like delivering the mail and filing things at the courthouse. And I got to know people. Then he'd tell me someone that I knew that he fired. And I go, how did you do that? Because I can't imagine. I couldn't imagine someone I know that I liked getting fired mm. or something bad happening, whatever. And he was very matter of fact about it. he had to just do it. And so that woke me up to the the lack of subtle. And then I also saw that any time that I dragged something out, it made it worse. Mm. Someone once told me, let's be friends. I dated this person. They said, no, let's slow down. Let's be friends for a while. See how that goes. And then, because we went too fast, okay? And what they really wanted to say to me is, I don't want to go out with you anymore. So I was friends for a while, and it was good, and I dug them. And I'm like, I think we can, you know, no, that's not what they want. They were, they were right. lying because they avoided that moment of saying, and by the way, they could have easily said, and which would have been cool if they meant it, hey, man, I don't want to go out with you. I don't. There's things, I just don't feel it. But I'd love to be friends with you and a legitimate, sincere friendship. People are rarely that candid, though. I am. I'm completely that candid. I'm so candid, I can't help but hurt people. (laughs) But I'm also very gentle and very thoughtful. Mm -hmm. So it's not like I do that to hurt people. Are you You candid uh, around the age? So at 18... Uh, you go to a junior college at nineteen twenty. You go to another college. Yeah, um, your Reason dad. Miami. Yeah. Your dad wants you to become a lawyer. Well, something or something along that. the lines. Yes. Yeah. A businessman, a lawyer, yeah. something that you can you know fall back on. I, a real career. I understand. My mom wanted me to do the same thing. Okay. She, she is a lawyer, and uh, I'm curious when you decide. Look, I'm going to do comedy around twenty twenty one, and you tell your dad. Yeah. Were you blunt about it? Blunt, because it was going to happen. I knew I wanted to be a comedian at eight. I was always the funniest kid in school. Finally, at 20, I go and audition, week after my 20th birthday, which ironically, I just filmed my Netflix special on my anniversary. In Chicago. In Chicago. On my anniversary of being a comedian, I, I sh- and I didn't plan that. It just was like, wow, 37 years. Well, I knew, just like I said, you know in a divorce, I knew I'm going to be a comedian. I go with my friends to the show, and then I say, next week I'm doing it. Boom. And next week I went to the open mic, and I passed auditions. I never had to have that talk with my father until I passed auditions. And I informed my father, hey, man, this is it. Mm. This is what I'm doing. What did he say? He was really mad at me. And we didn't get along for quite a while. And then he did the most magnificent thing that any person could ever do. He charged me rent. And then at the end of when I moved to Chicago, he gave me all the rent money. 
he had saved the money for me. He knew I was not going to save. Mm. And so he gave me all the money that I gave him for rent. What did it mean to you when he said at 24, 25 that you're as good as anyone he's seen do comedy? It meant that we were on the same page. It meant that, you know what? It made me feel good. Don't get me wrong. It really made me feel good. But I was so happy for him, especially now looking back at it, which I haven't for a long time, having two sons similar age, that he had not only made peace with it, but he was good with it. So I was happy for him. You know, I was like, man, good. So you're feeling good about this. Mm. And he did feel good about it and was supportive beyond belief for the rest of his life for me. Um, Because we were always very, I love my father and we were very close. But that period where I decided, you know, that whole saying, have something, something to fall back on, man, no, 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 no. Going into the arts is so difficult that I pro- I might have fallen back on it. But I also have a thing, and I'm not doing a bit, but this is for my stand-up, but I'm completely sincere about it. You're allowed to do bits on here. Well, it's not a, it's not a bit. It's, it's truly a feeling that I have, and I explain it. And that is, I don't believe that people should follow their dreams unless their dreams are what they're great at. I didn't say good. I said great. So if you're somebody who dreams of being a singer and you're going to move to New York, Nashville, or L.A., if you're good but you're great at numbers, you're great at numbers, you're good at singing, okay? I say follow the number path. Become a great accountant. And with all the money you have from being a successful accountant because you're great at it, buy some recording time make some music. And then here's the joke. Give the music to your friends. Let them tell you you made the right decision. But you, but that's the joke part. But that's, I truly believe you that believe because that. don't you see people out here who you know are not good actors, not good singers, not good, or they're good, but they're not even very good. Mm-hmm. And they're miserable because they can't get anywhere. They're miserable. There are two things that can help you. If you're not great at what you want to do in the arts, if you're really charismatic and you're really beautiful and Mm. men are women, those two can be helpful. If you're beautiful and charismatic, you don't have to be a great actor. You can bullshit your way through it. How many people do you know in Hollywood benefit from that? Many, many. I would say every project I work on, including ones that I direct and pick the people, there's at least one or two people like that. That you chose because they're They're good looking? Well, yes, they're charismatic and good looking. And that sort of, you know, and by the way, when I said charismatic and good looking, I didn't say star quality. Right. Star quality. um, I've never seen star quality in somebody that isn't great for whatever reason, that sort of comes with it. But I have met many a beautiful and charismatic person that has been decently successful, remotely successful, based on those two. And by the way, even if you're great looking and charismatic, if you're untalented, you won't make it. You have to be good. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? I'm just saying you don't have to be great if you have those. Did you think that you were great at 25? I didn't think I knew. I I have over the years realized that ego is worthless, 
but confidence mixed with humbleness, which is something that I've been brought to later in life, is the most delightful and wonderful thing. But at 24 or 25, I knew how funny I was. Mm. I knew. It was like being a baseball player and hitting the ball over the fence, you know. And I knew also, even if I didn't do well that particular night, that I was still funny. I never had doubts. You know, I had doubts about along my career, wanted to quit, but they were never about me being funny or not. Bob Odenkirk said from early, from the, in the early days of knowing you, you always had the appearance of someone who uh, everyone knows. Right, I did. Yes, but I didn't know what it was. Might have mistaken it for ego. And And by the way, I might have back then, if somebody told me I wasn't funny, argued with them. Now I would laugh. Not laugh of you're so stupid, but laugh like you're whatever you want to say, man. I know what I do. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't. That's why I, I have no competition with my peers. With my, with, I'm a, I, I like competition in terms of sports. I always love playing sports. But I have no competition with my peers in terms of career success. Career success, or you know, you just you're on your journey. I'm on my journey, and it it works for me that way. Where do you think the confidence came from? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know where it where it initially came from, because it's not like my parents were so confident. I think my mother was was uh, had an ego and was overconfident. Delightful woman. She was in show. She was she was an actress. Oh, I miss my, my both my parents. I love them so much. My father, not very confident, you know. And so I can't say it was a learned thing at all. So I don't know. I think really I was a great comedic voice and a really good athlete. Like I, did, I wasn't a good enough athlete to be on the Chicago Bears. Was not That would not have happened. Mm-hmm. But in terms of comparatively, I was much better than the people around me. Whereas comedy, I mean, I didn't know it at the time, but I probably was the funniest person in the state of Illinois or Chicago (laughs) at a given moment and didn't know it. Yeah. Because my skill level is that high as a comedian. My skills I'm talking about, I'm not, you know, and how funny I am. But um, it's probably you, Stephen Colbert, Amy Sedaris. Well, at that time, and she. Well, actually, no, because they weren't as developed as me at a certain time. <laughs> but I worked with Stephen Colbert in the box office. Amy was a waitress at Zany's. Amy Sedaris, I always say, is the funniest person I know. Mm. She's the most gifted person I know too. Wow, yeah. That made you think, like, who, who in your orbit? Oh really no, but I but I can do that all day. You mm-hmm. know, who are the funniest people? Mitch Hurwitz, who created Arrested Development, Larry David, Conan O'Brien, Amy Sedaris. Um, well, so let's I'm get not... on this because um, a couple things happen, and at the end of your twenties, mid to late twenties, um, you you have talked extensively about how you produce comedy specials. Yep, uh, one for John Stewart. And one for Dennis Leary. And one for Dennis Leary. I directed them. Subsequently at that time, Conan O'Brien was living with you in Chicago at some yeah, point? Yeah, at some point during those that periods, yeah. So, so the thing you've talked about a bunch, It was right before that Conan lived with me, yeah. That you have an eye for talent. Unequivocally. If I could make a fortune off that, I, that I could have... 
And and I and I don't say never say should have. Still time. Uh, no, that's not my thing, man. I mean, I like helping people. If I see it, I help them. I truly don't ask for anything in return except thoughtfulness, mm. kindness. Hey, thanks, Jeff. Oh man, Jeff Garland had my back. I I felt I've been criticized. I'll even say this: my my ex used to criticize me that I help people too much. And I love discovering people and helping people. Mm. Love. It's my, it's like, uh, what's that term? It's my jam. I love it. And so I never looked for anything in return. I never said, um, here, do this, go do that. And then, oh, yeah, that looks good. Yeah, I'll read that script and tell you what I think. And then I went, now I'm a producer. You know, I have a non-disclosure agreement with my assistants and we're still trying to I, I cross it out but there's a thing in the thing that anything they come up with while they work for me that I own with them and I'm like take that out to my business manager I go I don't want that anywhere near that is not my right not, but by the way I do see people take advantage of other people I do see people who want this and that like there was a uh, I remember um, yeah I'm trying to I forgot her name. Anyhow, this comedian, she's famous now. Um, that's her name. My brain. Anyhow, she came to me with an idea. And I know that anyone, it was for a Comedy Central series that we didn't end up doing, but we developed it. I said, you write, I will give you notes. And I'm a producer on the show because that's what we were doing. But so many people in my position have to write it with them. Have to get the money, have to get the credit. I didn't because I saw the idea needed my guidance, but didn't needed my help to become. Um, she had the vision, Whitney Cummings. She had the vision, and so I was like, "Sister, you write it." And she's an excellent writer, so I'm like, "You write it, and I will guide you." What did you see in John Stewart? On a personal level, I saw a charming, delightful smart, warm, great man who has gone on. I just texted him the other day after he did his whole thing, uh, you know, where he spoke. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. But I said, you always make me proud. And so I saw a great person. As a comedian, I saw a very smart person who, because I can talk about this at the same time, because I came into contact with Dennis Leary. I met Dennis Leary and John Stewart quite possibly the same night at Catch a Rising Star. We were all young comics there. And I ended up doing both their specials, uh, developing both their specials. Each of them had a different strength. For example, Dennis Leary, he was a star. He walked in the room, a light might as well have been on him. Okay, and such great performance skills and a great actor. John was all of the things on the inside, the thoughtfulness, the smart, how smart, not clever. Clever is not. I always explain to comedians and they don't get it. Like someone told me a joke yesterday. I don't want to repeat it because they're working on it. You know what I mean? But I said that joke's too clever. And I said, what you need to do is be funny before clever, and then you can have a joke that's clever. Mm. But cleverness is the enemy of comedy. Cleverness is lame. Cleverness is a head nod. 
Cleverness is an audience laughing because they don't know what else to do mm-hmm. in terms of giving you acknowledgement. So I like that. I've so, not heard that before. Yeah. So John was not clever. John was smart and funny, had wonderful material, and as time wore on, but great material. So when I worked with both of them, with Dennis, I wanted to work with, let's get through the Dennis I know. Let's do material that an audience can connect with emotionally. Because prior to working with me, he was very uh, on the surface, I think, in terms of um, he was, like I said, this great performer, but it was nom, 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 like just this, uh, you know, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners don't even know Dennis anymore. Like, it's like, you know, cause I realize young, how time flies, you know, and then John always had depth. So I had to work with him. I literally, we sat in a hotel room, like talking to him, how to play the room, how to, how to, how to engulf the room, you know? Um, yeah. You seems like you understood it pretty early on. Yes, I I could see things in other people and myself. I I mean I had comedy is what I do. I am inherent I inherently know comedy. I am I'll I'll say this and I swear and it's not I think I'm an expert in comedy. However, I learn every day and I'm proven wrong every day. Mm. Okay? Like when I speak at a college, the last thing I say is by the way, I don't know anything. Because that's True. What do I know? I remember uh, a friend of mine, this uh, comedic actor used to be on, on Saturday Night Live named Tim Kazarinski. He's an alumni of Second City, too. He spoke at Second City, and the room, it's 350 improvisers sitting in a room, hanging on his every word, talking to us about Saturday Night Live. But he's talked about Eddie Murphy. And then he said about Eddie Murphy, he goes, Eddie Murphy is the only true improviser I have ever met. And he said, um, none of you are true improvisers. I wanted to stand up. So maybe I didn't have the ego thing back then, but I wanted I had the impulse to stand up and go, you're wrong. I am. Okay. That being said, I did a movie with Eddie Murphy. What I learned is I am a true improviser like Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy's better than me. He is. That's what I. That's what I learned. I didn't learn that I don't do what Eddie Murphy does, and I'm not one of the best at it. I learned that Eddie Murphy might be the best at it. I have a question yeah. because we've been talking about the idea of ego and comedy and how the two uh, sort of interplay. As someone who's been in this for 37 years, yeah. Do you have any sort of idea what has happened with Eddie Murphy? Someone else, I know I, exactly what's happened with okay. Eddie Murphy. I don't want to. There's no secrets about Eddie Murphy. I don't mean that. I no, don't, but Eddie Murphy, as far as I know, is going to do another special. Oh, great! And because I just loved him growing okay, up. Why wouldn't you? He's brilliant. Okay, but so Eddie and I were talking. I was doing a thing at the uh, Upright Citizens Brigade, my own show, and no one ever knew who my guests were. And I had Robin Williams pop in. You know, I had different, I mean, and my regulars were like Sarah Silverman and Bill Burr. I like like great people. But I didn't, to sell out every week, I didn't have to announce. And I so I never did. And I said, Eddie, you could come to a set and no one would be expecting you. And it's small room, small crowd. And really, I think it was fear. And it's the fear of he was so thought of at such a high level of success and greatness, it's 
going back to that because he knows that being a stand-up, that journey when you take time off is going to take time to get back. But it'll be a success as long as he tries, but he could be great again. I'd love to talk to him about that. You know, saying, have you thought about this? Do you want to do this? Because if you do this, this will help with that. Because what happens for Eddie Murphy if he goes into the comedy store? Audience is excited. Eddie, all Eddie has to say is, uh, my cell phone's uh, made of uh, materials. Oh, my God. He just said, I, you know what I mean? It's So to get to the core, there's a certain journey that he needs to take mm. to get great. And... I would say to him also, don't do the special until you hit the greatness. Like, put it together quickly yeah. once you've got your groove. Don't say I'm shooting next September and then do it, do it, do it, and then next September comes because you gotta you gotta do it when it's right. And so there's a lot of things I'd love to talk to him about. I might. I'd say there's a good shot that I will talk to him. Um I only want to see him destroy. I only want, see, because what he can't do, when you saw him as a stand-up, and when I was a young stand-up, his content, I thought he was brilliant, but his content didn't flip me out because it was the content of a 22-year-old yeah. or a 23-year-old. So a 23-year-old is not developed as a man. What Eddie Murphy could say now as a man and the life that he's led would be fantastic. And so there'll be so much more depth. He could go down a path of like prior because he has that talent. Mm. You know, I have moments of that talent <laughs> that come and go. Some nights more than others, some nights none. I have moments. Those kinds of talents live, lived in Richard Pryor and live in Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy is so supremely... Uh, above me and anyone else. And I, like I said, I'm not comparing, but I'm comparing and saying yeah. he's just that much better than everyone else. There is no one who comes close to the kind of talent that he has inside him and insight and warmth. Oh my God. Could he just, wow, that would be, see, so I'm not exciting at the, just the mere prospect of him doing it. I'm excited at the prospect of him doing it in a deep way. And so, and you know, I don't know who he has around him. And I can tell you this, this is my Eddie Murphy secret. And I don't think he'd be mad at me if I said this. Eddie Murphy for the past, however many years that you haven't seen him do stand up, but he's not done that many movies, especially recently. Eddie Murphy loves music. Eddie Murphy has a studio in his house, a great studio. Eddie Murphy has famous musicians come and play with him. I have a CD that I've never played for anybody of his music from when we did Daddy Daycare. He said, here, here's some music. I'm, because he put out an album or two, and you didn't know at the time how sincere he was. Mm. Like, you thought, here's a famous guy. Like, there are people who go into rap or athletes, and you go, whatever. But this was a sincere, deep place that he was coming from, and he got criticized. And he tried to make hits. I remember that. And he and and it, he's like, well, fuck that, but he, it hasn't stopped his love of music. So I think on any given night, he'd rather be in his studio making music than go out at the clubs. Yeah, there's a realization that came to me a few years back. 
And, um, and that is, and boy, it's helped me. The comedy clubs are gyms. They're weight rooms. They are nothing but. There are people who play them who think it's their means to an end, that they're like they, they have their ego, they killed at the club. To me, it's all about working out whatever it is you're doing for your concert, for your, your, your uh, special. You know, it's not, oh, I'm the king of the comedy store. I'm the king of the improv. Well, good for you, <laughs> you know? So um, they're gyms. And as long as he looks at it like a gym and has that perspective, that'll also help him because those places are depressing. Now, mind you, are there glorious nights at the Laugh Every Improv Comedy Store? You bet there are. But way more nights where you want to die driving home, <laughs> whether it's because of the other comedians, whether it's because of the audience, whether it's because of the, uh, the vibe of the place, it can be really disheartening. But if there's an objective, and that is I'm going to work out, because, you know, when you go to a gym or especially a hardcore gym, where's the joy in that? That's a purpose. You no know, joy to get through life better or train as an athlete or whatever. Um, something we have not discussed. Yes. You look I'll great. come back on your show again, by the way. Are we going to do a part two? Yeah, I'll, I'll do part three, part four. You're great. Okay. Yeah, I do everything in my life now, and you should include this in the thing, is about joy. Coming on the show with you, I have found the, 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 the experience joyous. I know I've talked a lot, but I think that's what you want from me. But um, Imagine if I joyous, wanted you here. Very, but you're very good at your job. You're great at your job. You're great at your job. Great. You're almost a throwback. I feel like I'm on, a, I'm on a, a, some hip FM channel, and it's 1971. Well, it was the, the reason we're doing this show is because of Dick Cavett. So. Oh, well, look at you. Um, thank you for saying that. Sure. That means a lot, especially from you. You look great Thank right you. now. And and something that happened to you um, in 1989 is that you had a procedure done. Um, and you were only the, the 72nd person yes. to get this procedure. It was, yes. it was a heart. Um, I have it written down here. Wolf Parkinson White Syndrome. I wrote it down. My handwriting's terrible. WPW. You know, you've talked about how that, that created some humility in you. Most definitely. But it, having it created it. Mm. Like, I, I, I started having palpitations 12, 13. But I, well, I already was full of humility, full of girls, you know, when I was that young. The girls I liked, it didn't work, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, and so I had my share of humility. Mm. I don't wish humility on anyone because that's adversity. I'm not humility on anyone. What facing what I faced is great adversity, but great adversity can lead to wonderful things. As a matter of fact, it always does, but it's just not fun. I have, I have a question of just the spirit, which is how have you continued to move forward in this sort of battle you've had uh, with health? Because you look incredible right Thank now. Thank you, man. my friend. I'm doing great. Um, but I know it's not easy. And yeah, I, and then I had a stroke in... Uh, 2000? Yeah. You know, to be honest with you, my attitude is, hello, adversity. How you doing? Come on. I can't be stopped. 
I knew when I was younger with the women that I had unrequited love with, I knew if I just stuck in there, it would change. And it didn't do it the way I wanted to, which was I would hit a wall and I go, I guess I should quit, like not hold out hope. 100 out of 100 times, however many, they started liking me. Mm-hmm. Like hard to where I had to break their hearts. It was weird. <laughs> yeah. Fucking weird. And it always would happen that way. Look at my career. By the way, I'm not as far along as I even want to be in my career. You know, I, I wish I'd made more movies. I wish that I had done more specials. But you're 57. I, I mean, yeah. you know, not 97. Yeah. No, I know. Uh, no, by the way, I will. I'm make I'm going to do that. But by the way, at <clears throat> so when you're 20 years old and you like a girl or you're in love and you say I'm never giving up. Mm-hmm. I think that's awesome. But at 57 years old now, unrequited love is painful because I don't have 10 years. I mean, I do to go. I'm never, you know, it's right, not, right. That's it's hard to be like, well, look, yeah, yeah. I'll just you keep know, putting in the in work. In terms of, you know, you have to be more real, not realistic with your goals, but because I say, if, well, here's the thing we're all so, like, I'm already want you to cut the, the I wish I parts, the I wish I did this, I wish I did that, because that's not really inherently me. I love the journey. And it's more about the journey. I'm not result-oriented. I'm journey-oriented, okay? Uh, What's the point of saying you have a successful, great marriage, but behind the scenes you're not happy? I'd rather have people think, are they good together? But yet you are good together. Do you know what I mean? Um, I'd rather have a joyous joyous show on... um, any given night than um, someone important was in the audience and I nailed. You know what I mean? I just love joy. And I, that's become so important. Joy and being kind to myself. So if you're not result-oriented, yeah, stay in love, which mm. I might do from now on. It, it's, it's interesting because I brought up stuff with health and stuff with eating. And the first thing you – it seems that love – Love is and, everything. It's entwined in, in Love the, is everything. In that. The love of – your friends, the love of your life, the love of your art or your work, love. You got to have something to love. When I said don't follow your dreams, um, I'm not saying don't do what you love. I'm just saying don't make it a career if you're not great. Mm. And if you don't know if you're great, eh, give it a shot, but have some sort of... But then I can't say give it a shot because there's so much adversity that you might go, oh, well, I didn't, I wasn't good enough, and you could have been great. I don't know, you know? It's really tough. That's why it's important. Boy, I have to say, maybe I'm even luckier that I have a meter that's honest within myself more than the actual skill that my meter judges. Mm. Because having that meter inside you going, well, you know, I, I, you know, people, I'll go back to love. People will say, oh, I can't be with her. That's out of my league. Not out of anyone's league if you have a sense of yourself. What do you offer that person? Now, it may be you don't offer that person anything. <laughs> well, yeah, then why would they be with you? So, you know, I don't even know where I'm going. 
you're ping-ponging around, but it's okay. Mm-hmm. We're allowed for that. Um, there's a quote here that I've written down that I think means something to you. It's by, okay. by Kurt Vonnegut. It's be soft. Do not let the world make you hard. Do not let pain make you hate. Do not let the bitterness steal your sweetness. Take pride that even though the rest of the world may disagree, you still believe it to be a beautiful place. Yes, yes, yes. Now more than ever. And did I put that quote somewhere? I've not used that quote a lot, but I know it and I love it because, okay, and this is a good place to end. That, what he's really saying in that, be kind to yourself. That is the quote of be kind to yourself. And at 57 years old, the only thing I know and I've gotten closer to the mic. That's why it sounds a little more richer. I should have done the whole interview this close. You could have told me. You know how it works. Uh, your fellow in the booth uh, should have said something. Uh, you both have failed miserably. Today. Absolutely. Okay, anyhow, it's the hardest thing to do, but the most important thing to do is to be kind to yourself. I know nothing else. I know this more than comedy. I know this more than any. It's the only thing I know for sure. Be kind to yourself. No matter what the world throws at you, don't let them beat you. Don't. And it's hard. And I have my bad days, but I come out of it better than before. Feeling better than before. That's a beautiful thing. God bless Kurt Vonnegut. You have said before that you've never felt um, sort of requited head over heels love. Right. Do you think you'll find love again? I... I don't know. I don't know what my journey is about. I don't know if that powers me comedically. I don't know. I honestly do not know. I am hopeful. I am oh so hopeful that because I have never experienced someone loving me like I love them. I have never experienced that in my life. Even in my marriage, I know, I mean, love me, but not the way I wanted to be loved. And, uh, yeah, and by the way, my wife loved me, so I don't want to, you know, it's so hard. It's such a private thing, you know what I mean? And I just don't want to upset her or reveal, you know, things. But I can just say, I, I have the right to say, I have never had anyone love me the way I have loved them ever in my life. I don't know what that feels like. I think it's still possible. Oh, most definitely possible. That's why I'm. If it's not possible, I can't be hopeful. So I'm hopeful. Mm. We'll see. Uh, Jeff Garland, it's been an absolute joy having you. It's been my joy, my friend. You are a delight. The show is del- a delight. And yeah. We'll have to do it again. Uh, anytime. There's so much we didn't even go over, but yeah. it's okay. All right. Jeff Garland. Thank you. Thank you so much. easy i want to give a special thanks this week to jeff garland to learn more about him and our show 
You can visit our site at talkeasypod.com. We're available to stream on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. There you can see a back catalog of episodes we've done with folks like Alan Alda, Rob Reiner, Norbin Lear, and many other comedy legends. Our show, Talk Easy, is executive produced by David Chen. Graphics by Ian Jones. Illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Our intern is Ghani Zur. Our music is by Dylan Peck and Jin Sang. Our show was taped at York Recording in Highland Park by Tim Moore. Our associate producer is Ian Chang, and our producer is Neil Innes. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to the show. I will see you back here next Sunday with Ron Perlman, and uh, I hope you all have a good week. So long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today.